action. Welcome to Torn Stubbs, the trash movie podcast with me, Robert Gershenson, photographer and head of podcasts at Trash, which could be found at movetotrash.co.uk and Joshua Winning, the greatest film critic you've never heard of. And we're going to the movies. We're going to continue our celebration of Sofia Coppola as we move on to her second feature film, Lost in Translation, which was released in 2003. It sees two characters, one played by Scarlett Johansson, one played by Bill Murray, and they're both in Tokyo for various different reasons, and they're both completely lost, disconnected from anyone else around them, and suddenly they find each other. I remember when this film came out, it hit huge. It It was everywhere, wasn't it? it? You couldn't move for Lost in Translation. Was it because it's Bill Murray? I reckon it was, you know, mostly off the back of Bill Murray, but also she just had that amazing first out the gate with the Virgin Suicides. She had, I mean, but Virgin Suicides had a really small American release and it didn't really make any money. It's like her lowest grossing film that she's made, purely because it was such a a small film. I remember reading this book. Do you remember Easy Riders, Raging Bulls? Yeah. The Peter Biskin's book about film in the 70s. He did one about film in the 90s. Mm Mm-hmm. And there was this line that's always stuck out to me. And he said, you don't make money off your first film. You make money off your next film. Ah. And I think that... And she did, because this is her highest grossing film. I can imagine that, but I don't necessarily think I'm going to apply the money analogy here. It's Mm. more about the first film will give you the exposure. The second film makes you go boom to the moon. I mean, yeah, it'd been like four years since Virgin Suicide. So in that time, I imagine she would have fostered some interest. Like people would have started talking about, oh, have you seen Virgin Suicide? And oh, it's really interesting, blah, blah, blah. So yeah, then she comes along with this and it's like two out of two. She's done like one classic after another in quick succession. And it like, that's just doesn't happen. Like filmmakers often have their difficult second film. Mm. Um, like the director of Donnie Darko, Richard Kelly. Oh, Southland Tales. He came back with Southland Tales, which like buried his career. Yes. Um, you know, it really so many, did, didn't it? <clears throat> it really, really did. Then he did. made one film after that. Then he made The Box. Yeah, that was it. Which was actually pretty good. I like The Box. Yeah, I mean, it still went absolutely mental by halfway in. Yeah, but it, yeah, he, but he's a really good example of a filmmaker who had such enormous promise. Yeah. Kind of came out the starting gate, blew everyone away and every other metaphor you would like to use in that <laughs> sentence, and then died on his second film, essentially. Yeah. Even though it seemed like everything was stacked in his odds. You know, the, he had that great cast, bigger budget, everything. But then you come and look at Sofia Coppola, and she kept it personal. She kept it kind of true to her kind of filmmaking, and she created something that is just a modern classic. It's I fucking love this film so much. And it only, I only love it more the more I watch it. It never grows old. So I saw it once on my own. And then I saw it on a date. And it was such a disastrous date. It was awful. The guy, he barely spoke. I was going to say, was he Japanese? <laughs> <laughs> he barely spoke, which is kind of apt for this film because there's not, it's not dialogue heavy. No. It's not dialogue heavy. 
But we went for a drink in the Hard Rock Cafe next to the cinema up in Leeds afterwards. And halfway through, he just got up and just went and looked at every single piece of memorabilia. And I was like, I'm calling a cab. Oh, God. That's a bad date. That is a, it's a terrible, terrible date. Yeah. But this film... <laughs> this one made up for the fact it. Was, it was absolutely the best part of it it was yeah. mesmerizing i was at film school at the time so this became the new thing to you know the, the I, I felt the bar had been raised yeah massively. the bar had absolutely been raised not just on on what anyone aspired to achieve but because i'm of a certain age that i was a kid when ghostbusters came out as was um scarlett johansson yeah but the fact is no one had seen Bill Murray like this, ever. Yeah. Oh, that's true. No, you're completely right, actually, because he was always, like, the funny guy. He was, he was always the funny guy, but he was starting to make films that were a little bit more sentimental, a little bit more, mm. more emotional. You know, if you watch Groundhog Day, everyone just remembers it for being the fact that he has to repeat every single day. But that's not all there is. There is a, a gorgeous love story between him and Andy McDowell. Yeah. But this is almost like everything he's ever learned, everything he's ever done is all leading up to this role. And And also he had that kind of, he comes with such an enormous kind of um, suitcase full of crazy stories. Mm. And like, you know, he is the guy who has turned up to college parties just (laughs) randomly. Um, and, And he kind of has this like sad, bittersweet, thing about him where you just don't really know exactly who he is what he wants out of life you know anything like that so this kind of role which obviously was written for him yes she chased him she chased him like voraciously um and you can see why because he just you see him in the car and you immediately know who this guy is Mm. you know he's this kind of sad lost figure that we imagine bill murray is i don't i don't think he actually is like that well i don't know because at one point he wasn't really making films. You know, he did What About Bob. He did Groundhog Day. Then he did The Man Who Knew Too Little. Yeah. And he kind of disappeared. He was and this in Wild was, Things. Yeah, but yeah, yeah, he was. He was the um, the solicitor. He was the, the lawyer in the cheap suit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, then, well, then he started doing stuff with Wes Anderson, but not in but, Yeah, roles. but he wasn't the lead. He no. wasn't, you know, the, the films were not being sold on him anymore. He'd and very he had that much, awful experience with Charlie's Angels. Yes, he, you know, taken a step back. So this was more of a, a return to form, I guess. But it wasn't just a return to form; it was a return to what he used to do, and then some. Yeah, because he is outrageously funny in it, but without making jokes. Really, like he makes a few jokes, but he's his character humor. It's kind of the way he exists the things that happen to him, all the stupid faxes he's being sent by his wife. <laughs> you know, everything that happens is kind of at, kind of almost at expense, his expense. Like you're laughing at him, but also with him at the same time. It's like a weird you, thing. Yeah, you do feel that maybe there's a, a send up of the Bill Murray character that he yeah. plays. But he is subtle in this film. He's sardonic and sarcastic in that classic Bill Murray way. He's physical, this is, there is a physicality to this film that is yeah. brilliant. And it's not slipping on a banana skin. Yes, he's on a, on a, uh, a cross trainer yeah. and he's, you know, he's doing that kind of physical comedy. But he inhabits this character that is so wholly realized. And yeah. it is incredibly 
physical. I only really noticed that this time around, I think, that everything that happens to him, like even him just standing in a lift, yeah. he is the tallest man in the lift yeah. because Japanese people are shorter, apparently. Um, you know, he's at a photo shoot being told to turn to his right or turn to his left, you know, be like Roger Moore. And like when he's on that awful TV show as well, where he's like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he's like pushing from the camera. <laughs> It's like his body is just, he just looks exhausted. But he's also allowed to stretch his improv wings. Yeah. And obviously he came out of, of comedy troops, SNL. Uh, I think he was part of Second City before that. Mm-hmm. So there's that scene very briefly with the guy in the Japanese bar and then Scarlett Hansen turns up. But mainly that that old woman or that old man in the hospital yeah and i've got a feeling that was just them quick turn the camera on bill's doing something because the girls in the back the women in the back row are laughing and he's sort of like looking over at them so funny so so good that old man is basically i think i've looked up the translation the old man is basically asking him how long he's been in japan for (laughs) but the way he does it with his hands (laughs) you have no idea what he's saying he's just repeating what the guy says it's it's just it's just a pleasure and look i don't give a shit about the oscars but he was oscar nominated for strangely best supporting actor and i think it's a i think it's a two-hander i think they're both the lead definitely yeah, they definitely are. I mean, you see her first. You see her bum more than f- before anything else. Yes, but you but, see his face first. Right, so yeah, I mean, so he is the lead. <laughs> I guess so. In that, by in going that by sense, that. Because he lost out to Paul Newman, who got an Oscar for The Road to Perdition, and that's definitely a, a supporting role. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's Oscar's just, for goodness sake, just sort it out. It's interesting you should say the first time we see Scarlett Johansson is her ass. Yeah. We don't see her eyes obviously the next the next scene is bill in the car and he's got his eyes closed and then then we see scarlett johansson for real but she's out of focus she comes into focus and her head is slightly turned away we don't see their eyes immediately there's Mm. a real isolation of us and them they're isolated from us oh yeah i didn't notice that because this is really a film about isolation yeah it's about that kind of ageless genderless um kind of drifting it doesn't matter who you are where you are in your life at some point you may be drifting and it's like Mm. this that's the kind of really sweet and lovely thing about this film is that it's about two people in different times in their life different situations different everything apart from the fact that they both feel lost and they find each other and it's such a lovely idea and it's kind of so uncynical and just sweet, I think. I think Scarlett Hansen, beat for beat, matches Bill Murray. She's 17 in this film. She's, she's 17? Yeah. I knew she was young. I didn't know she was that young. Yeah. But she... She was born the year Ghostbusters came out. Brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> but she underplays everything. It's almost as if Sophia said to her, don't act. Hmm. Don't act. Just underplay. Because I think if you've got Bill Murray on screen... You need to give him the space in order to be Bill Murray. And the space that you've got left, that's your, that's your playing field. Yeah. Whether it's, you know, he's, he's taking three quarters of the energy. She's got to give a quarter. She's amazing to watch. She could easily have become this, like, weirdly obsessed. Like, she could have been the really bad version of this where she becomes obsessed. She becomes jealous, controlling. Yeah. You know, that moment when... Um, Bob wakes up and he slept with a lounge singer and um, 
Charlie, is that her name? Charlotte. Char- Charlotte, yeah. she comes to the door and you expect her to be like, are you fucking kidding me? Or like, oh, I guess I'm not if good If it was a regular you. romance, that would have been yeah. the big argument. And she just kind of like goes, oh, I guess you're busy then. And you know that she's upset. Yeah, but that's, that was going to be my question. Is she upset? Well, yeah, because she storms off to that restaurant. They have a horrible mm. lunch. It, put, it puts attention on the relationship. Yeah, I on think the it, friendship. It, it dents the, the connection. Because their relationship already is so ambiguous. Yeah. You know, are they, is he a parental figure to her? Is he like kind of like a kind uncle or is he actually a love interest? And the film doesn't really ever specify what they are yeah. to each other, which is great. And it's it's the, the classic Sofia Coppola ambiguity again, yeah. which if you try to explain any of it, it takes away from it somehow. Like the reason it's special is because you don't really know exactly what they're thinking or feeling because maybe they don't either. And it, weirdly, the ambiguity makes it way more accessible. Yeah. You start projecting yourself onto the piece of art the, yeah. the film that you're watching the story and also watching it older now like this came when this came out i would have been 20 would yeah. i be 20 2003 yeah. you were so 19 I, yeah so now i'm 35 and i'm already starting to feel more like bill murray than i ever did like before i was 100 kind of more, i was scar joe and now i'm bill scar joe <laughs> <laughs> now you're bill ma yeah i'm bill ma i'm, I'm not bill ma he's a comedian I think it's it just does such a good job of of being like a no or like a near mance. It's like not entirely sure what it is. Um, Sophia Coppola, she's talked about how she wanted Bob and Charlotte to go through the stages of a rom- romantic relationship in one week. Yeah. So she said that they they meet, they court each other, they hurt each other, and they discuss intimate life. Um, so she she clearly does see it as a romantic relationship. I don't know if I do. I think it's more subtle than that. It's not pure romance. It's something else as well. No, it's not. There's this new concept of this thing called sort of queer friendship. Mm. And it's not, it's not necessarily restricted to just LGBTQ plus people. But it's more of a, you're more than friends, but you're not quite boyfriend and boyfriend or girlfriend and girlfriend or boyfriend and girlfriend yeah it's more but you of a, still sleep together yeah but it's more of like a connection thing you're right. you're kind of like if if there's a scale of zero to ten or one to ten one is very platonic ten is very romantically involved five would be bang in the center mm. queer is more, the, this queer friendship concept is more seven Eight, not quite boyfriends, but definitely not friends. There's a stronger connection so there. It's, so it's not romantic love. It's kind of not brotherly love either. It's like something else. It's just very, <clears throat> very, very strong. More than more than just being friends. More than just you know fancying. There's a mm. really strong connection that's stronger than friends. But maybe you don't want to sleep together, or there is no sex, or you don't. You purposely don't go there. So you're besties. Yeah, but. But it's like you could, I guess, like um, like Annie Leibovitz and Susan Sontag. They were clearly in love, but they might not have slept together. They might not have lived together, but they're kind of spending their lives together. Hmm. So maybe that's how this relationship can fit into it. Yeah. And also this relationship has a, a, time, a time limit. Like they're going to leave Japan. Yes. And you don't. 
you get the feeling they won't see each other again. You know, there's that line that Charlotte says where she says, let's never come here again because it will never be as much fun. It's kind of like this is a capsule relationship where there's such melancholy attached to it. There's Mm. such joy attached to it. And it has that sadness that's really similar to Virgin Suicides where you're watching these people and you know that there's an expiration date on their relationships, on their lives together. Do you feel that's why they won't stay in contact in America? They're both from America. They could stay in contact, but do you think that the fact that... I mean, she says, let's not come back to this city again. It won't be as much fun. Is she actually saying, let's not have this experience in America? Yeah. I don't know, because they wouldn't be the same people in America. No. And there's more distractions. The point is, when they're here in Japan, they have too much time on their hands, and they don't know what to do with it. And it's making them kind of almost in like scratch out their insides they just like just constantly in a in a kind of in a cycle of self-reflection yeah which is quite destructive for the for these two anyway or for Um, anyone i think yeah and so as soon as they get back to their lives i don't think that they would have the same connection i just don't think they would you don't think they'd ever leave their partners for each other um not for not for each other i don't think Charlotte's with Giovanni. What's his name? What's his name? Giovanni Ribisi. Yeah. Who, Who? is the connection yes. to Virgin Suicides? He is indeed. He's the narrator of he... Virgin Suicides. Yeah. And Bill Murray is with his fax machine. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know what? Actually, there's a link there with this film and one of your favorite films, The Killing of a Sacred Deer. Oh, is there? Yes. Because the, um, the woman who plays the, the wife, Laura, on the phone... She is Nancy Steiner, and she was the costume designer on Lost in Translation, Little Miss Sunshine, and Killing of a Sacred oh, Deer. Oh, wow. Among many others. Well, but yeah, there you go. some trivia. Exactly. Hashtag. I don't think they would have... Well, they might leave their partners, but not for each other. Why do you feel differently? Well, you don't know, do you? Because you don't know what he says at the end. So is it a case of, let's meet up and, you know, give it a go when we get back to America. Let's, let's talk about things. Do you know what she, do you know what he actually says? No, because they there was this whole thing on YouTube where people were trying to figure out by like raising the sound up and all that. And the, I don't know if I want to know. Okay, I won't say then. You can look you can look at it up, up on. on I don't know internet. if I want to know because it's such a special moment. It could be yeah. anything. Because I love I love that because Sophia Coppola was going to dub it in later. Yeah, and then she decided it was better if it was just between two of them. Yeah, and actually knowing what has been you know discussed as possibly being what they say it's not that interesting it is it's nice that it's they get their little yeah moment. i don't ever want to know i have not known for 16 years <laughs> 16 years yeah long long time but this film still feels fresh it really does actually i think this is something that could have come out at sundance this month yeah because i don't know what it is it, it just i think because emotionally it's so universal yeah and we've all experienced a lot of what is experienced in this film, you know, kind of being in an, an alien country where you can't even read the street signs. You know, when, when Bill Murray, when Bob is in the car on the way to the hotel at the start, he's looking out his window at all the signs and you have no idea what they say. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I love that closing travelogue where he, the car's driving. I'm not so sure I do. I just don't think she knew how to end the film. No, I love it because I... I 
always have that feeling that you get when you've your trip is over but you ah. still you still have to go to the airport and you're watching the city as it disappears around okay, you that's a good idea and you're they, think, do, they, they do he does say i'm thinking of a, a, a prison break i want to get out this bar get out this hotel get out this city get out of this country mm. but it's that thing where you're on your way to the airport and you're seeing this city for the last time yeah and you've got all these memories and emotions attached to it and then you have to go to a fucking airport and you're going to the airport yeah it's really sad the film's got a really loose kind of style to it to the point where it feels devised it feels like they're just making it up as they go along they have like a a rough outline and a couple of marks or or loose plot points that they want to get to but the scenes just kind of unfold naturally it's very it's almost documentary style yeah like it's like a i was gonna say like a fashion documentary but not a documentary about fashion a documentary (laughs) in the style of fashion yeah i think that it just feels so embedded in tokyo yeah it feels like you're moving with the city maybe like um like coppola knew tokyo really well like she'd been there a lot in her 20s and she wanted to like she calls this like a a valentine to tokyo but wasn't this born out of her experience of being there during the press tour for virgin suicides oh i don't know i'm pretty sure i've heard that along the last decade and a half maybe it is but it's also kind of partly informed by her relationship with spike jones Yes, who she um, was divorcing around this time, yeah, wasn't she? Yeah, she was. She didn't even thank him at the Oscars. No. <laughs> I, remember, I remember thinking, why hasn't she thanked her husband? Yeah, <laughs> poor ex-husband. Yeah. Yeah. Because she was the Charlotte character where she was kind of going off around the world with oh, Spike Jones. Oh, I get it. Yeah, and being kind of left to drift a bit. Her writing is... It's like another level in this yeah. film. The last one, she was adapting from a book. This is completely devised herself... Well, this is actually only one of two films that she's made that aren't adapted from something. So what would the other one be? Somewhere. Somewhere. So we'll come on to that when we come on to the episode. But she's written some perfect sketches here. So there's the the Santori Times commercial. It's it's a perfect sketch. It's almost something that the two Ronnies would have done. And then there's the uh, lip my stockings. Oh, God. Which is like a big train sketch. You remember big train? No. Simon Pegg, that was his like first big break. And then he did Space. Oh, right. Um, it was written by Grain Linenham and directed by him. The guy who did um, Father Ted and the IT Crowd and Black Books. Yeah. Um, so they were all a little bit off kilter. Lip my tights is hilarious. And like, especially when she's like rolling around on the floor. <laughs> yeah. She's oh, like, let, let me go. go. And he's let like, I wish go. I could let you go. <laughs> With pleasure. Yeah. <laughs> and then obviously the photo shoot where he wants him to be like Roger Moore or Sinatra. That was, that was all uh, It Was that improv? That was improv, yeah. I can imagine that would be improv. But if it had been written, it's, it's just a, a perfect sketch. It's almost, almost something like SNL. It really plays to Murray's strength. Yes, just as an idea. It's a great idea. Yeah. And she kind of trusted Bill Murray and the other actor to kind of just go with it. I was watching an interview she gave where she was talking about how she got Bill Murray. Yeah. She knew that he was reclusive and he doesn't have an agent and you have to phone this number. You need to get hold of him somehow. And she was thinking, I can't make this film without Bill Murray because it's been written for Bill Murray. He's the only one that can play this role. So she was having a real hard time getting hold of him. And she said to her dad, Francis, for Coppola, she said, 
you know, I know Al Pacino lives in the same area of town as Bill Murray. Do you think I could just call him up? And she even admits that they might have done The Godfather 3 together, but she barely knows him. She knows him through Francis. So Francis said, but you can't really phone up another actor and ask for and she goes I'm, I'm gonna do it <laughs> so she's phoning up she goes hi ow it's it's um it's Sophia Coppola oh how are you <laughs> it's a cookie monster <laughs> oh, cookie monster it's like how are you she's like yeah yeah I've got I've got this great script and uh this character's in it and it's all about this I need you to help me get in contact with Bill Murray <laughs> <laughs> not like will you be in it Al Pacino yeah. I can't imagine oh, Al Pacino being awful, in this role yeah. no he's not a funny guy at oh, all so that's how she managed to actually get to Bill Murray uh-huh. and he said send the script over let me read it and he was like yes but she still had no idea if he was actually going to turn up for the first day of shooting he hadn't signed a contract wow. and so the day before shooting he turned up and she was like okay I can relax now <laughs> Bill is in town <laughs> it's fine thank god he did yeah I know because I think this he knows is, what's good for him in the end, you know. I think this is his greatest role. I think it is as well. Do you think you would need a sequel to this? Definitely not. What would you call it? Like Lost in Hawaii? Like, <laughs> just couldn't do it, could you? It's a one-off. Would you seriously want a sequel? No, 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 no. God no. Good. No, well, I like I like self-contained. Don't even put that things thought like out this. There. But I was just just wondering, you know, where would you go with the story? But they're still lost. They're still not finding that, that connection. Maybe they bump into each other in, in years to come. Like, we're going to get a Call Me By Your Name sequel because oh, the book yeah. goes on a bit longer. Yeah. In fact, the book is told from the point of view of um, Elio as an adult, reflecting back on on the the summer. That summer. That summer in Ugh. 1983. Yeah. They would have to call it Found in... Los Angeles, New Mexico, or something. <laughs> New Mexico. Like, yeah, they would have to do something different because you can't play the same beats over again. You can't do a sequel where they're still lost. No, you have to do a sequel where, like, Bill's dead or something. Or but know. she doesn't. She doesn't really lend herself to sequels. She's never made a sequel. <clears throat> no, she's got too much, too much other stuff to be getting on with. Or has she? Yeah. One film every three or four years. Yeah, that takes a lot of time. Like she's still just an independent filmmaker. Yeah, she still has to raise the cash. Just because she's related to someone famous doesn't mean she gets a free pass to make a movie. True. It's still fucking difficult to make a movie, especially in this climate. Exactly. Well, she's not making a Marvel film. Exactly. And she's not making Star Wars. I mean, she might benefit from the fact that Hollywood is actively looking to employ more women. Yeah. And she's got this proven track record of films. Well, what, what big franchise do you think she could take over and still retain her auteur nature? What, what big franchise would really benefit from having a Sophia Coppola version of that character? Transformers. <laughs> really? <laughs> <laughs> that was Lost in Translation, directed by Sophia Coppola. Give us a clue to next week's. Well, there is a, there is a link between Lost in Translation and the next, the next film. Yeah, there is. I mean, it's slightly tenuous. Okay. I will explain in the next episode. You can find the podcast on the Apple Podcast app, also on Spotify, Acast, and also the TuneIn Radio app. Make sure you hit subscribe and follow so you don't miss an episode. And we're on Twitter at TornStubsPod. Are you a fan of Lost in Translation? Do you think that Bill Murray is the best thing ever? Give us a tweet. We'll hit like and reply. We're off to lip our tights. Until next time, I remain Robert Gershenson. I'm Joshua Winning. Cut. <laughs>